Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking about World Book Day with Cassie Chatterton of World Book Day and Sophie McKenzie, novelist and teacher of creative writing to adults at London City Lit. So join us as we explore the approach of World Book Day's 25th anniversary, why reading matters, and the challenges of writing for children. Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, we're going to be looking at World Book Day. So welcome to my second show of 2022. Since we last spoke, I've spent my time marking and annotating year 11 English mock exams, writing year 13 mock papers, and starting to prepare sick form students for the challenges of sitting their first ever public examinations in circumstances that are rapidly approaching normal. AQA have given us all the advanced exam information that they promised. COVID seems to have loosened its grip on the good people of North Yorkshire, and the sunshine has occasionally managed to pass itself off as distinctly spring-like, in between the wind and the snow and the rains and the floods. This week, I had the pleasure of attending a North Yorkshire prep school to judge their poetry recital competition. They've spent what sounded like a wonderfully imaginative week enjoying trips out to a local zoo, studying animals, reading books, singing, and committing animal poems of their own choosing to memory in preparation for the whole school poetry recital event. There is something particularly pleasing, I feel, about hearing boys in an all-boys school environment really taking pride in their skills of pitching, projection, and comic timing, and bringing the work of poets like Ted Hughes, Ogden Nash, and R.S. Thomas to life for an audience. Judging which boys walked away with the prizes this time was certainly one of the tougher tasks I will face in teaching this year. Such was the high standard of all our performers. What had made this event particularly successful was the degree to which students' work in the English room, the music room, and the theatre had come together so seamlessly with the hard work and imagination of classroom teachers and the strong support of a headmaster who clearly recognises the long-term benefits of a rich and strong arts education for his boys. So thank you very much to Aysgarth School for a very entertaining afternoon. It was great to visit a school where books are genuinely celebrated all year round and not just for 24 hours in March. We've also had an extended half term this month at my school, so I've tried to give myself a little time to engage with other reading and writing. My Teachers Talk radio colleague Alex Wright has helped me reconnect with the craft of flash fiction writing that I haven't utilised much in the last five years. And I even made it over to the Bronte Parsonage Museum for the first time 
in a long time. So, two weeks ago, my wife, my quizzical daughter and I each pulled on some extra layers of clothing, bundled ourselves into the car and made the circuitous journey into the Pennines just as the first storm was arriving. The Parsonage currently has an excellent exhibition centred on the contents of Charlotte Bronte's wardrobe. If we think the world is interconnected these days, then this exhibition will remind you that we have all been connected for quite some time by our need for the basic materials in which we dress ourselves to face the world on a daily basis. If you haven't yet been to visit the Parsonage, I would strongly recommend you do so. I remain convinced beyond all doubt that there is a Bronte suited to every taste. Inevitably, half-term involved some planning and preparation work too. This holiday, I sat down and read R.C. Sheriff's anti-war play Journey's End, a drama examining the tragic waste of the First World War and those compelled to fight for its mindless objectives. This has been set for examination for one year only for our Year 10 students, no doubt as a concession to the time pressures that have come with the pandemic. The fact that I was reading this text and planning classroom discussion topics while atypically extensive military exercises were taking place on the northern and eastern borders of Ukraine, my last holiday destination prior to the COVID travel restrictions coming into effect, gave this task an added poignancy. Having witnessed what has happened since on our televisions, radio sets and social media accounts, I am certain Sheriff's message remains as timely as it was in the 1920s. We pray for a peaceful resolution to the armed conflict in Eastern Europe, and I hope those of you fielding questions from your students about this confrontation this week are able to offer them answers that are both truthful and sensitive to the need for the future generation to hold on to an optimistic vision of what peoples and their governments can achieve when they are focused on cultivating wisdom and working for the common good. I hope tonight's show will allow us all some time to reflect on the positive effects that reading and the celebration of reading can have on our schools and wider society as we turn our attention to World Book Day and its aim of inspiring young readers in the UK. In the first half of the show tonight, you will hear my interview of earlier this week with Cassie Chatterton, CEO of World Book Day, in which we discussed World Book Day's aims and the steps we can all take to promote a love of reading. Then, after the first news break, I hope to be joined live by Sophie McKenzie, a novelist writing for both adults and children, and a teacher of creative writing to adults. So please do text or call in this evening if you have any observations you would like to share with my guests, perhaps on how you intend to celebrate World Book Day in your own school, or your own thoughts on what you think students should be doing for themselves to mark this event. So on to my first guest. After an early career in publishing, Cassie Chatterton spent 10 years working in the Arts Council 
Before becoming CEO of World Book Day shortly before the COVID pandemic struck. As CEO, Cassie seems perfectly placed to share her passion for books and the positive benefits of reading with schools, libraries, parents, and a range of reading ambassadors across the country. I caught up with her earlier this week to discuss how World Book Day is gearing up to manage the return to in-person reading events and the events that are planned to celebrate the project's 25th anniversary. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, Cassie, and thank you for joining us here on Teachers Talk Radio this evening. Um, you've been working with this World Book Day project for some time now, a couple of years. I wonder if you'd be able to talk our listeners through what it involves. Yeah, I'd be really happy to. First of all, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and um, yeah, I'm nice to be able to join the show. Um, so World Book Day is a charity that's been around for 25 years. We're actually celebrating our 25th birthday this year um, and in all of that time we have been about encouraging children to read um, not just to, to read but to enjoy reading to see reading as something that's a, a beneficial part of their lives so um, that that's our charitable object that's our mission um, and that's what we do today so more more so than perhaps um before we've got a focus on reaching children who aren't otherwise seeing themselves as readers so we're doing we're doing more as a charity to reach a broader range of people, children and families. Fantastic. And which kind of ages of children are you particularly focused on? Well, interestingly, we see what well, we describe World Book Day as being something that is for children of all ages. So from naught to 18. And as with a lot of things, what, what the, the evidence shows is that if you can make an intervention early in children's lives, then it has a longer term impact. So while we see that there is most engagement with World Book Day when it comes to kind of primary years, um, there's also a really strong case for us making sure that we reach children um, in nursery settings and at home before they get to nursery, um, so that we're developing that love of reading or just the habit of reading together as a family, making it something that's normal and a, a kind of shared part of family life from the very earliest of days. Um, but then we also try to make sure that we're reaching children who are a little older as well possibly finding most engagement um, at secondary level with year seven and eight, and maybe it tails off after that. But, we, but we're doing what we can to make sure that we're reaching a broad age range, but also a broad range of abilities and, and types, of, types of interest as well. And World Book Day is coming up to its 25th anniversary this year. What caused it to be started in the first place? Ah, well, it, it's very first year World Book Day um, started as a campaign, really an awareness campaign um, uh, founded by the Booksellers Association and the Publishers Association. So it's a very unique proposition in that it's, it's the booksellers and the publishers initially working together to do to, to kind of come up with this project that was all about encouraging children to read. The evidence then is very similar to the evidence that we have now, which is that if you can encourage children to have a love of reading, it will make a real difference to their life chances. So it had that kind of spirit of wanting to do a good thing for children's lives and be and, and bring reading into children's lives from the very beginning. So it lasted as a campaign alone for a year, very soon afterwards um, was incorporated as a charity and has been that ever since. Fantastic. And if we think about what kinds of 
<clears throat> things children are reading in school. Does World Book Day have a view on what particular kinds of texts students would be best reading at different key stages? We we do and we don't. So one of the things that we'll definitely say is that it's very it's very much up to children. If you're going to be encouraging a habit of reading for pleasure, then having an element of choice is absolutely vital. So while World Book Day completely understands that there are books that children need to be reading and there's work to be done around what they need to be reading um, and reading stages and so on, where World Book Day comes in is very much about reading for pleasure. And so if you're going to be somebody who grows up as having a reading for pleasure habit, you have to be able to see it as something that you can choose for yourselves. So, so actually, um, there's a kind of uh, child focused answer to that question. And then there's a more broader kind of industry focused answer to that question. If we're talking about children, then really we'd love to see children picking up books, discarding them, deciding that they don't want to read them, but then also going on to find out more about what they do want to read and what they um, and, and making that choice for themselves. When it comes to the answer for the industry, then yes, we do also have a view. So um, these days we work with the industry with what we call our selection guidance. So it's, it's a range of um, tips and advice for publishers to come to us with text that we know um, are, are more likely to engage a broader range of readers. So that's things like um, making sure that there are illustrations, perhaps even you know, in, in um, books that might be for um, older readers. To keep that kind to keep the interest and to make sure that illustrations are seen as a part of reading and whether that can be you know comics or it can be manga we're seeing books we're kind of taking quite a wide interpretation of what books are and how you can engage children through illustration um and uh, and we also try to make sure that publishers come to us with a, a, a range of titles from a range of authors representing a range of experiences. So, so really that's about saying, we want books that children are reading today to be representative of the population they live in. If children don't see themselves represented in books, their lives, their families, their own experiences and cultures, then it's very, very likely that they're going to be less likely to pick those books up and see them as relevant. Um, so we like to see a really broad range of experiences and backgrounds represented um, so that more children can see reading as something that's for them. Yeah, this question of rep, uh, representation is a good one, actually. And have mm. you seen any changes in the last five or six years or so? Well, there have been very great work is being done by the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education. So they're reflecting realities reports and data that, um, that, that, that they collect, um, along with Book Trust, is, I would say, an absolutely vital piece of work in helping us all to understand um, what's out there for children and and how children might be able to engage with a range of texts so if we don't have the data to show um, who is being represented whether it's characters or whether it's um, illustrators or whether it's authors within children's publishing within the offer presented by children's publishing then it's not possible really then to make any kind of change so the reflecting realities report does the job of kind of gathering in that data and it's still quite early days i'd say for that report they'd probably say so too but in the short time that it's been around, um, that they are seeing some positive changes in going in the right direction. So you work quite closely with publishers and with authors. How does your organisation work with libraries to promote reading outside of schools? Oh, well, re libraries are just an absolutely essential part of the reading ecology. So um, we see libraries as as another place that creates the really essential experience of experiences of creating readers. 
So um, you might you might remember from your own kind of background and growing up as a reader, I certainly do, that it's not one place or the other, is it? So if you're lucky enough to have books at home, that's fabulous, but they might not be enough for you or you might want to have more choice. So I certainly visited the school library and got some great advice from school librarians there. Um, and I was a voracious um, reader and liked to go to my local library too. So um, as well as going into a local bookshop with my book token at Christmas and choosing something that was, you know, all of my, all my own. So libraries are a really important part of that ecology. And I think when it's particularly when it comes to reaching children who don't have the experience of going into bookshops very often, they're providing choice, they're providing um, expertise, they're providing the really essential advice that comes with growing up as a reader and developing that habit of reading for pleasure. Fantastic. So libraries are this kind of other world that we can explore as readers with our with our children in Absolutely. schools and with our children at home. In fact, my daughter's just been down to the local library only this morning to pick out 10 books that she was particularly interested oh, in. And as a six year old, yeah. she's at that point now where she's striking the balance between reading books with mostly words in and reading books with pictures and words. Oh, and she's, still, she's still at that nice stage where she likes both. As yeah, you move yeah. into the secondary phase, it seems mm -hmm. from my experience in schools that often there's a drop off in reading around about year nine, year mm -hmm. 10, certainly as mm -hmm. students start to become more focused on their GCSE studies towards examinations. How have you tried to help schools and libraries sustain that love of reading beyond year nine, which I think is is the ultimate achievement if ever that could be done yeah it's, that is a challenge and it's something that we're looking into more closely at the moment so i would not go so far as to say job done i think there's probably a lot of work for a lot a lot more people to do over more time here um and there's going to be a range of pressures and probably a range of interventions too but one of the things that we are doing as well book day is talking to children in that age group to, about what the barriers are, about where they see reading fitting into their lives, about where reading sits alongside um, other experiences that they might have, including gaming or watching TV or just talking with their friends. Um, so it's a work in progress. Um, it's a year long piece of research that we're doing with uh, some help with from the Arts Council and also working in partnership with the National Literacy Trust. And at this stage, when World Book Day goes out, what we're encouraging schools to do is to see World Book Day itself as part of the research project. So our secondary pack for, for schools um, includes information about how children at that, at that age, at that stage, um, can use World Book Day as a moment to kind of lead a peer-led research project and give us back the information, the data, which we can then use to go on to share with our colleagues and peers across the industry, but ultimately, hopefully, to make World Book Day something that's more effective at encouraging them to read at that age. And in a and in a way that is appropriate for that age group, given their context and given all of the other pressures and interests that they have in their lives. Fantastic. So we we might hope for something like a year 10, a year 11 student still celebrating World Book Day. Well, it would be interesting, wouldn't it? What One of the things that has been really fascinating about um, focusing on the 25 years of World Book Day this year is the number of young people uh, who've been coming to us to say, 
to talk about the role that World Book Day played in their lives and to you know whether whether or not they're saying you know I, I was a reader and it felt like the day that it really celebrated my interests or we've definitely had children or young people coming to us to say that when they were children World Book Day did the job for them of encouraging them to read and making something that felt more accessible and like it was for them like reading could be for them so I'm really interested to know what today's um, 12, 13 year olds, 14 year olds might say about World Book Day in the future and how that kind of generational change can continue. Because we're seeing those children, seeing those adults who were children and experienced World Book Day become advocates for reading. And that's that's what it's all about. So hopefully we'll see that kind of, you know, World Book Day as a movement happening in the future too. Yeah, my own school, I have this vision, perhaps in a couple of years time, once we've had a chance to organize it of perhaps on World Book Day having our younger children being read to by some of our sixth form students. I think that would be quite a powerful way of showing that reading continues all the way through the school. It's something I've mm -hmm. been pretty keen on for quite some time. Do That's any a lovely schools idea. get back to you with any particular strategies that they've used that they thought were especially effective? Uh, yes, and in fact, that is that is a strategy that has worked with other schools. I'm not sure necessarily sixth form, but 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 certainly um, peers reading to each other or or recommending book ideas to each other. Um, that is definitely a strategy that works. Um, yes, so we do we do get this information back from schools themselves, but also from our partners in the industry. So um, I'm thinking particularly of the work that the OU does around reading for pleasure. Um, and they bring in um, really fabulous examples of how schools are encouraging reading, including things like, you know, having a book nick on World Book Day, just laying out a range of books on a, on a carpet or on a rug and having children choose from what's there, just kind of creating a much more informal environment. So whether it's through the OU or through our partners at CLPE or the National Literacy Trust, um, we get a range of examples of what schools really think works for them. Um, but we also hear from schools ourselves, so every year we send out a survey asking schools to tell us what they think about World Book Day, what works, what doesn't work so well. Um, and ourselves as well, this year we've, we've taken a real step forward because we've had a look at all of the evidence around what works, around encouraging a reading for pleasure habit, which includes an awful lot of feedback and data from educational settings. And we've managed to, um, to really synthesise it now and, and pair it back to six elements that encourage your reading for pleasure habit. So everything that we do is based around these six elements of reading for pleasure. And all of the suggestions that we might make to schools about how to celebrate World Book Day are based on that, but they're also based on real world examples as well, what has definitely worked in, in actual schools. And what are those six elements that your research is pointing to at the moment? Ah, so they are, um, first of all, being read to regularly. So that's the sense that as well as reading for themselves, once you are reading to a child, then it takes away the need for them to have a particular skill level in order to engage with a particular text. So being read to, whether it's in a group or in a one-to-one, -one, whether it's at school or whether it's in a, a home setting, that's really vital um, for a child kind of developing that sense of um, having, having wonder and interest in stories and texts. Um, having access to books, not surprisingly, really important. So, of course, at school, of course, in the school library, if they've got one, um, of course, being able to go to a local library, too, or to a bookshop. But having books at home, having books of their own is also seen to be really important to children having a sense of themselves as being a reader. 
Um, earlier on, we were talking about choice. Choice in what to read is absolutely vital. So um, whether it's the, the, that kind of frustrating stage that I certainly remember experiencing as a parent when I was thinking, I know that I know that your skill level is beyond this book that you seem to want to go back to time and time again. Let's choose something else. Actually kind of validating the child's choice and, and having them be able to go over text that we possibly think they've grown out of or be able to try something that we think is possibly a little bit out of their range or to be able to put something down and try something again, try something else. Um, that that choice is, is very, very important. Um, but of course, surrounding that, there's another point, which is that having trusted adults, informed adults and peers around them who can engage in their choice in their choosing is also really vital. So, you know, plenty of school librarians are out there guiding children through their choices all of the time. Um, or local librarians or booksellers. It's that, and parents too, that sense of, well, if you enjoyed this, then how about that? Or if you really hated that, then how about we go with something else entirely? It's the child's choice, but they're doing so from a really informed place. Um, not surprisingly, um, we also think that having a fun reading experience is also really important. So the more reading is seen as something that is just about school and homework and a lesson time, the more it will become something that some children may turn away from. So creating a kind of relaxed, fun experience around it is also really important. Um, one of the bits of evidence that I return to here is um, we asked the National Literacy Trust to talk to um, children in their literacy hub areas. So these are areas of very low literacy and high disadvantage um, to talk to them about the role that World Book Day played in their lives. And it was very interesting that what we got back was that was the real sense of excitement and joy and celebration that World Book Day, but of course, you know, other experiences around the same area can create. And when you and when we've got that sense of it being a fun thing, that reading is fun, then it, it takes it out of, um, yeah, it takes, takes it out of it being something that only needs to be done, that should be done and into something that becomes enjoyable too. Um, and there are loads of ways to do that, um, loads of ways to create a kind of social experience around reading, um, you know, whether it's kind of craft events or or just kind of you know, creating discussions in school, like the book Nick that I mentioned, that have children talking about reading and what they enjoy and sharing their choices with each other and making it sociable. And then the sixth one is all about having time to read. So whether that is a kind of regular habit of having a reading time in school, whether it's a regular story at home, you know, lots of people would refer to the bedtime reading, but it can be done at any time, can't it? I remember reading books on the on the bus on the way to nursery in the morning. Um, so it's that it's that sort of having time in, in our lives to be able to de devote to reading 10 minutes, five minutes a day. That's really all it needs. But it's 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 knowing that that time is there which is why we found great evidence um, coming in through lockdown because because there was more time to read and so children were turning to reading as something that was um, important for them for them and their well-being at that time. That's interesting isn't it particularly the lockdown period because I've heard different mm. um, conflicting research claims actually about how much reading children did during lockdown. In some cases there are children I've met who have done a considerable amount of reading and some who've done mm -hmm. very little at all and i think it does come back to some of these six points you've already made actually 
I can, yeah, yeah. I can, um, well, I can remember the experience of trying to teach my own daughter at home while also trying to teach my students in my school online on the computer. Very, very difficult to make sure yeah. A, that we had the time to read, B, when we did have the time to read, to make sure it was fun, because I knew a certain amount had to be crammed into 20 minutes before I had to go off and teach another lesson. And we don't struggle too much with access to books in our house, but you know, you, you do want to be careful about which books your daughter's picking off the shelf, um, yes. particularly if you're not around to keep an eye on it. So I wondered if you had heard any particular anecdotal evidence of students finding lockdown particularly good for their reading or students finding it a bit more challenging? I think you're absolutely right that it, it, it depends on the context and it depends on the particular experience of that child of that student. So um, there the, the was evidence that came in through the National Literacy Trust and their annual literacy survey that showed how important reading was to some children during lockdown. Uh, but then, as you say, um, you know, it's, it's a complex picture. And so there was then also evidence that came in through the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education, their Reading for Pleasure report, where they um, talked to a wide range of teachers, where, you know, if, if children didn't have books at home and then weren't able to be getting out to the library or being able to access books from a school library, it was a very different picture. Um, so it's that, that sense of, you know, that, that ability to have access to books and a wide range of books that you could, that, you know, a varied choice a book stock that is well refreshed that that's what encourages reading and if that wasn't available then I'm, I'm sure that those children did not have a great reading experience during lockdown yes i can remember a couple of initiatives that some of the publishing houses um, mm -hmm. were involved in, in producing free ebooks for students to yeah. read over the internet I, I don't know how successful those were i think there was quite high take up um but, but again you know it's about um who's got access and so you know there's, there's there's a lot to be said for the brilliant work that was done by publishers and others you know we at world book day made sure that we had audiobooks available and downloads as well but if a family doesn't have access to uh, to data then probably those services those options weren't available to them so there are nearly 400,000 children in the uk at the moment who don't have a book of their own you know, we we as part of World Book Day make sure that every child can have access to the one pound token, which which means that they can have a one pound book in return. When we talk to children afterwards about um, about whether or not they use the token and whether or not they chose a one pound book, there's an awful lot of take up. But it is still quite shocking to know that of those children, the ones who are receiving free school meals, one in five say that that book was the first they've had of their own. So we're looking at enormous disadvantage when it comes to um access to books and access to reading i wonder if you're going to say a little bit more cassie about the one pound book project because i'm not sure necessarily all our listeners will be familiar with it sure um so this has been part of an essential part of world book day from the very very earliest days and um, the way we work at world book day is to produce a one pound book token that's sent out to all schools in the uk and ireland too um, and we also make sure that it's available in a variety of other ways. So if for some reason that one pound book token gets crunched up in the book bag and does not make it home, there are lots of other ways to be able to access it too. Um, and the idea very much being that it's about the child having the option to take that token and exchange it for a book um, of their own that they've chosen for themselves. 
So we like to make sure that children are encouraged to go into an environment where they're going to have a brilliant experience of choosing. So not just necessarily from the 12 one pound books that they can have for free, but also seeing the range of other books on offer. So we work with publishers to present every year um, a, a range of books that are the one pound books. The token can also be used as a discount off other books too in other bookshops. A lot of bookshops take part in this scheme. Um, there's, there's great coverage across the UK. I looked at the um, Find a Bookshop um, tool online the other day and saw that something like 2,700 bookshops across the country are taking part. And that's everything from you know an independent bookshop to a local Tesco, other supermarkets, Asda. Um, so we try and make sure that retailers in a wide variety of settings are taking part are stocking the one pound books and giving children that experience of choosing a book for themselves it's, it's particularly pleasing to see that you know children are going into physical bookshops and picking up physical books from physical shelves uh, yeah. we were in howarth in west yorkshire uh, the oh, weekend great. just before the snow mm -hmm. came down and looking at some of the bookshops there and how they've decided to promote particular texts for World Book Day was fascinating. We happened to walk into one of the bookshops, which is essentially a feminist bookshop with lots of books all about the suffragettes and the suffragists. And my daughter was quite struck by some of the pictures in some of the books she saw while she was walking around that space. And I think just being able to walk into a bookshop after lockdown itself has a particular kind of power after so yeah, long well, just staring at a screen it really does doesn't it i mean walking into yeah walking into a bookshop at any time but yeah particularly after the pandemic it's 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 a huge pleasure isn't it and, and making sure that a lot of children can have that experience is really important to us here at world book day the dilemma i have as a head of english in my school is how much time my students should be permitted in inverted commas to read on a kindle as compared mm -hmm. with reading a physical book. I wondered if you had a view on that. I think if they're reading, that's a good thing. <laughs> I, um, so the, so again, you know, I'll go back to the National Literacy Trust for evidence on this and 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 actually also um, some work that has been done by Farshaw, the publisher. People find um, digital formats really accessible and really engaging, whether it's Kindle or whether it's audiobooks. But actually, when we talk to people or when, when people discuss their reading habits, that there is a there is a very real sense that print matters more eventually. People really want to return to print, and the same is true of children. It can be a lovely, accessible way in for lots of children, an audiobook or reading something short on a on an e-book, on an e-reader. Um, but then there's such a wide variety and engaging with a text in a printed format is a really special pleasure and, and, and children as well as adults often find that and maybe we're just having a more blended reading experience these days. Thank you. And you're involved too, I believe, with helping students encounter authors in schools. What role do you think that plays in helping students understand the effort and the craft that goes into making and producing and distributing a physical book? Oh, that's really interesting. So I think, well, I think probably a lot of authors and illustrators that spend a great deal of time talking to children, students about their lives. 
we'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what inspired them to become an author or an illustrator and to show examples of their work and to encourage children that this is something that perhaps they might want to do or just to just to read, just to read more. I also know of quite a few bookshops who go and talk to schools about the process of, um, you know, more kind of into the industry side of things too. Um, so it depends who a school wants to engage with, I would say. Um, we definitely see author and illustrator visits as bringing a tremendous amount of joy um, and as definitely part of that moment of celebration that's so important to World Book Day, but also again to a child's experience of developing as a reader. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that. So we have, as part of World Book Day, provided some, um, some online events. There's a live streamed one that's happening um, from the Matilda stage at the Cambridge Theatre. And then there are some, and then there are a range of other digital events. So e even if authors and illustrators aren't going to be available to come into your school, or you can't necessarily bring children out to go to a local bookshop where they will be having events, there are ways to engage with this. There are plenty of other online events. Well, Book Day ones obviously are going to be fantastic, but, but you'll find that there are an awful lot of online events with authors and, authors and illustrators who can bring that experience in different ways to children. And if schools wanted to be involved in the online streaming events, how would they best go about doing that? Oh, just sign up. They're very, yeah, there is, there's no, hopefully very few barriers. Go to the World Book Day website, uh, click on events and, and sign up to be, to experience the live stream. So the live streaming is something I think, again, is very, very helpful for schools because I, I think of the place where I am at the moment, I'm in rural North Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. um, trying to get authors to come any great distance by train and then by car or taxi is, is quite challenging. So having the ability to beam into something that's already structured and set up is really, really quite, quite valuable indeed. How did World Book Day cope during the lockdown two years? Well, um, in the same way that everybody did, we, ha we had a look at um, what was really important to us and we tried to do our best to make sure that we were delivering our mission. So. You know, we're here to encourage children to read and to give them the resources and everything they need to develop as readers. And we could we could do that in World Book Day and possibly in ways that were new and different and that we want to keep as part of what we do. So, for example, um, we had we had experimented with online events before, but we made sure that everything was available digitally and we and we weren't able to do any live events and all of our efforts and resources went into producing these amazing digital events. Um, which are part of World Book Day again this year and will remain part of World Book Day because, as you say, you know, they're accessible to so many more children and schools and families. Um, and we want to make sure that World Book Day is reaching as many people as possible. We love the live events, but we just know that we need to make sure that there are um, a range of options available. Um, and then also we were acutely conscious of the fact that many, many children, as we've been talking about, didn't have books at home and didn't have access to books through other routes, either either at school or through libraries. Um, so we made sure that we worked with the um, 15 literacy hub areas that I mentioned, the National Literacy Trust 15 literacy hub areas, to get copies of the £1 books directly into those into schools there or into those communities through other ways through other community groups so i remember one of the literacy hub areas feeding back that they'd done a kind of um a, a book pickup point where um, families could come into the playground and pick up a book that way so the, there were ways to be inventive there were ways to do things differently during the pandemic as we all found very much so i think
So where's yeah. World Book Day going in the future? How does this project develop to, could it encompass the world as it's called World Book Day? <laughs> well, it, well, it already is World Book Day. So it, it is celebrated all over the world. I don't, there, there doesn't seem to be a World Book Day out there that has quite the same focus or mechanism as our World Book Day. It's a UNESCO designated day. So um, it, it's kind of interpreted differently by every country that celebrates it. Um, we think that yes we've got an awesome model and it could be one that could be transported elsewhere but really what we'd like to do is make sure that more children and families in the uk and ireland are having the experience of reading and there's plenty to do for us here um we're actually a very small team quite a small charity um and of course we have ambitions but the ambitions are really about making sure that we're doing the best we can to reach as many children as possible to give them this amazing benefit of reading that you know the life chances it brings are extraordinary fantastic i think it's a very very valuable project to be involved in indeed and you can clearly see the difference it's made to the children well i can clearly see the difference it's made to the children i teach as we really kind of give them the ability i think to make choices about what they read and to think best about how they want to develop as readers and possibly even as writers possibly even yeah, as absolutely. potential authors mm -hmm. in the future Thank you. It's been really, really fascinating to talk to you, Cassie, about Book Day. I wondered if before we finish, we might just um, close by suggesting to teachers a couple of things they might want to consider if they're currently in the process of planning their World Book Day provision for next month. Well, a really good place to start, I hope, is the World Book Day website. We have resource packs there for nurseries, for primary um, schools, and also for secondary settings. So in that, we've got everything from our 25 ways to celebrate World Book Day, which is mapped against the, the six principles of reading for pleasure that I mentioned, to links to our online events, to ways to download our author and illustrator academy. So that's where the one pound book authors and illustrators are talking about their books. Our website is absolutely packed with resources for World Book Day. Um, we also have a showcase of partner resources too. So there's everything that we are producing and it's there, it's free. You're please very welcome to use it. And then also let us know what you thought, think about it, what you, what you thought about using it so we can improve it for future years. But then you will also see a range of other things that are going on through other organisations and across the country too. Cassie Chadson from World Book Day. Thank you very much indeed for your time. I hope that's given our listeners plenty to think about as they prepare for the imminent World Book Day events that will be taking place in schools up and down the country, no doubt. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. 
Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with our plan, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot UK. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to a report in the Times Educational Supplement, schools are struggling to create the collegiate environment required for recovery post-pandemic, as a result of the top-down pressure experienced by school leadership teams. Results of a new survey show that one-third of teachers cite management issues in schools as the reason most likely to lead them to quitting the profession, along with pay and working conditions. CEO of the Chartered College, Alison Peacock, has called for more support for teachers as a response to this survey. She warned, education recovery will only occur if teachers and leaders are provided with necessary support. General Secretary of the NAS UWT Teaching Union, Dr Patrick Roach said, the government must do more to tackle adverse and bullying management practices in schools. Teacher wellbeing is vital to securing country's education recovery after the pandemic. The survey of 4,690 teachers was carried out by TeacherTap on behalf of BET UK. In Ethiopia, Education Minister Beranu Nega announced that the conflict unleashed by the Tigray People's Liberation Front has seriously affected the access to schools of more than 3 million students in the areas invaded since June. More than 1,200 schools have been completely destroyed due to the war, while three universities in Amara State were totally or partially damaged by the Tigrayan forces. The rebuilding of these institutions 
will cost in the region of $2 million. In Kenya, the Education Cabinet Secretary, Professor George Magoa, has voiced his hope that vocational and technical training in the country will be strengthened to help with the country's economic development. Magoa said the demand for plumbers, electricians, technicians and artisans was rising, challenging learners to take advantage of the demand and acquire the necessary skills to fill up the gaps. He said, we must tell our people that every job is important. At technical and vocational education and training institutions, you can develop skills that can address an existing problem in the community and in turn secure employment. We must move away from the examination oriented system and impart skills in our learners to ensure that they are competent to face the workforce. The government has rolled out an annual 2 billion Kenyan shilling conditional grant to vocational training colleges to boost enrolment. This has been your weekend Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, today I'm responding to a tweet from Michelle Stevens at M underscore Stevens zero, pointing out to at Team English One that a lot of people don't know about the snipping tool, and she was compiling a list of shortcuts. The thread sparked a lot of fantastic responses and inspired today's Two Minute Tech. Today I present Getting Snippy With It. In Windows, a simple shortcut combo of Windows plus Shift plus S opens the snipping tool. The snipping tool is like an advanced version of print screen. After the combo key press, a small menu appears giving you five options. Rectangle select, which is draw a box around what you want, freeform select which is draw a shape around what you want, window select which is pick the window you want to capture, screen select which captures the full screen or replication of the print screen button. Some may say there's no point to this but stay tuned, there is. Finally there's a cross to close and pressing escape can do the same thing. If you have an interactive board you can pin snip and sketch to your taskbar, right click the icon and select pin to taskbar. Now you can press it to make screen grabs and not have to go over to the keyboard. Snip and sketch also gives you the ability to annotate on a screenshot. To make this even more powerful did you know pressing Windows and V shows your last 25 captures to your clipboard? The first time you use this, you'll need to switch on the feature by pressing Windows and V and agreeing to switch it on. Now you can take several screen captures and then paste them into the app you're presenting with. This can be very time efficient. For this week's visual version of the episode, I've made a series of clips and given some real life examples of using the snipping tool. So don't forget to check out TT Radio 2020 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm discussing World Book Day and reading this evening. And we've just heard from Cassie Chatterton about the aims of World Book Day and the ways in which teachers and parents can help make it a success. World Book Day is a wonderful initiative which involves readers from across the country but it also involves authors too, often in ways that teachers might not quite fully realize. I'm pleased to say that my next guest, Sophie McKenzie, is one such author. An avid reader from youth, 
Sophie initially trained and worked as a journalist for, before becoming an award-winning novelist, working across the adult crime and thriller genres, young adult fiction, and books for primary school children. Sophie's first novel, the teen thriller Girl Missing, was published in 2006 and has since sold well over a million copies. When she's not writing novels, Sophie is a creative writing teacher at London's City Lit. She is also one of World Book Day's £1 authors for 2022, and I'm delighted to say that Sophie joins us on the programme now. Good evening, Sophie, and thank you Hi. very much for joining us. Hi, lovely to be here. I hope I've given my listeners a sense of your route into writing, but is there anything else you would like to add by way of introduction? Um, no, I think you've pretty much summed up the, uh, it is, it's funny hearing your, your kind of past uh, in a few sentences like that, but I think you've got all the salient points in. Brilliant, I'm pleased to hear it. So you're working on the World Book Day £1 book uh, this year. We heard a little bit about that from Cassie in our interview in the first half of the show. Would you like to say a little bit more about how that works from an author's perspective? Yeah, um, basically the 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 first, I mean, obviously I'm very aware of World Book Day. I think all children's authors certainly are. Um, and the the first, I suppose, the first time I was aware of being considered for it was when my publishers told me over a, about yeah over a year ago um they said that uh i I'd, I'd been chosen as a as one of the one pound book authors and uh, so that's quite a long time ago uh and at that point um i had to get get my head around all the things that were going to be required to produce that one pound book which is slightly different from how it would work in the normal course of things. So not actually in terms of the readership, because kids' books, unlike... So adults' books are always divided up by genre. But if you go into a bookshop, kids' books, children's books are, are divided by age. And um, I, I, was asked, I was being asked to write something for the age group that I normally write for. So possibly at the younger end of it. So... I'd say sort of 10, 11, up to 14. Um, and and that I was used to, but everything had to be written quite fast and it all had to be top secret. So, you know, that's the, the normal sequence where you, you know you're going to write a book and you can be, be quite open about it. Um, we I was given a deadline, which was August of last year, uh, but I also knew that the announcement about the Authors for World Book Day wouldn't happen until the September, so I couldn't actually talk about it. So that that made it quite, I mean, quite an exciting, um, quite an exciting thing to be involved in just on that basis. Um, and of course, I was really thrilled with the idea of being part of something that promotes reading for pleasure. I was just listening to your interview, and and that was coming through so strongly about how that's such a core aspect of. Uh, of, of World Book Day and what it's for. Um, but going back to what I was being asked to do, it was the same, you know, original idea, the same age group that I'm normally writing for, though with the caveat, I always have to add that, of course, like most writers, I'm writing first and foremost for myself. 
Um, but I am also very aware of the age group of readers. Um, the only other aspect that was really different was the word length because they they gave me a word length of around 15,000 words and that's not you know they're not rigid about it you know, you've got quite a, a bit of leeway on either side but that's a lot shorter than the books I normally write which I would say are roughly between 55 and 65,000 so a lot shorter and yet a lot longer than a short story so a very unusual length to be writing. And, and that was actually the most challenging aspect of, of putting together the story, of, of coming, coming up with an idea that was strong enough and simple enough and then not, getting, not going off on too many circuitous tangents. So I started off um, wanting to explore a number of ideas in, in the book and my editor, who I was discussing the ideas with very early on, she said a couple of times, Look, that's a really interesting concept, a really nice thing to explore, but you just won't have room to do mm. it justice in 15,000 words. So that that was a sort of a bit of a learning curve at the beginning. Um, but once I'd, once I'd decided on the story and, and cut out some of the, well, I suppose what might have been subplots in another, mm -hmm. in a longer book, then, um, yeah, I just got on and wrote it. And, uh, and in that, to that extent, it was like writing anything. It was just that, that pro the three, the three prong process, which or the three stage process of, of writing a book, which is much the same as writing anything, to be honest, you, the, you plan it, you write it, and then you revise it. Mm. And were you writing up to the word limit on the first draft? Um, do you know, or were I'm you writing quite... down to the word limit on the first draft? Um, I, I, I don't quite know how this happens, but I, I actually trusted that the story I had was going to come in at more or less the right word length. And I, I don't quite know how I knew that. I think it's one of those things that I was aware that if I was stripping out subplots and, and, and cutting sort of a, a plot idea in half, as it were, then I could roughly work out where I was going to land word-wise. And I just trusted that I would. And I thought, well, if I'm over, I'll go and cut. And if I'm under, then I'll, I'll see if there are things I can add in. And actually, I, I pretty much on the first draft ended up at, I think, between fourteen and 15,000. So, yeah. So quite close then. Mm, yeah. And, and as I say, the 15,000 isn't a rigid thing. It's, it's, mm. it's sort of a guidance. I mean, I'm sure if I'd gone a thousand over or a thousand words under, it wouldn't have been a problem. It's, it's just, I think they want to make sure that the um the books are going to be kind of big enough for kids to get their teeth into but but not so big that they become um outside the you know that they stop being short books <laughs> see what i mean because that's what they're pitched at short books yeah once once they get to kind of closer to full novel length then perhaps they're too complex for the for the purpose they're designed yeah, perhaps. I, I mean, I, I obviously that's really a question for World Book Day and and the reason behind um, making the book shorter. I I'm not quite sure what that is, but it's. I think it's. I think it does make them more accessible. If if for instance, and I, I know such a big part of World Book Day is the drive to get books into the hands of children who 
might not otherwise have access to them. And I think that um, the a shorter book can be a more accessible book. Yeah, so, I mean, there might be a sense of achievement that comes with actually starting a book and finishing it, mm. perhaps within a certain frame, particularly for those students that might struggle normally with reading texts in the school library. Yeah, I, I mean, you're catering for so many different kinds of readers, aren't you? You've got the ones who will kind of gobble up any book and then the ones who would love to read but don't have the opportunity. Um, and I think that idea of having a book of your own is, is something really special as well. So, yeah, so so there's, yeah, lot, lots to consider. And I, I'm sure they know what they're doing when they kind of have worked out the the for, the format of how the world world book day one pound books operate yeah so once you've had this go at the brief and you've had this go at writing the draft and you've made some decisions about what you cut in terms of plotting or subplotting what other kind of choices do you have to deliberately make when you're writing for younger children um well this is something that i've really come to understand over quite a long period of time. So um, I, I've, as you said in your introduction, I've, I've written books for adults as well. And I'm, I'm a, for me, story is king or queen. Story is the most important aspect of, of the books um, I like to read and the books I want to write. And to that extent, I don't make a massive distinction between writing for adults and writing for children. Um, but of course, there are lots of things that happen when or lots of things you need to be aware of when writing for children that you really don't have to think about very much when you're writing novels for adults. Um, you have to think about the way you're presenting uh, certain, um, well, you have to think about your language. I, I don't actually mean in terms of the level of language, because I, I don't, again, I really don't know why this is, but luckily um, for me, I seem to write in a quite, an, quite, I write naturally in quite an accessible way for the, the uh, 11, 12, 13, 14 year age group. So I'm not very good at writing, I have written books for younger children and I've always found it more of a challenge to be aware of my language for younger children. And with adults, I went through a very big learning curve in actually making my writing more complex and sophisticated. So I, I seem to write quite naturally for the age group that I've written most of my books for, the, the young teen age group. Uh, so I don't mean, but I, I, I don't mean that. I mean um, the level of swearing, for instance, which you will find absolutely none of in my more recent books. Um, I didn't always appreciate how important that was when I started out, but mm. having having spent considerable time talking to teachers and librarians, I realised how just, you know, uh, and I'm not talking about um, really bad words, I'm just talking about sort of almost light cursing can can actually be very off-putting, can create a barrier. And I thought to myself, well, why would I want to create a barrier to anybody accessing the book? So I've, I'm really careful now with the language I use. Um, 
in terms of content, I don't think anything should be off the table. But I do think when you're writing for children, you have to be really careful about how you present the information. Um, mm. I, I also feel certainly for the age group I write for, and this is a personal choice, but for me, it's very important. I wouldn't end a book without any feeling of hope because I, I, I think children are often often something that, well, they often experience a certain amount of powerlessness in their own lives. They, and I mean this even in the context of a very happy child uh, childhood. You have to go to school. Your parents will make rules that you have to follow. And, and that's as it should be. It gives children a framework within, within which to develop um, themselves. Um, but f for part of the pleasure of reading as a child sometimes is to go on um, an adventure. So... I'm, it's not about not putting your characters in peril, but to end with despair or a lack of hope, I th would not be how I would want to, to end a book for, for the age group I write for. So those That's are a really the interesting thing to hear, actually, from, from the mouth of a children's author. That's something I hadn't really considered. But, I mean, it's, it's an issue we come across quite often in English classrooms, particularly in the secondary age group my year 11s have just managed somehow to sustain their enthusiasm for reading the novel 1984 all the way to the end which has mm. always struck me as being english literature's scariest political essay <laughs> and we, we were listening to it with an audiobook all the way through that two months or however long it took us to read in 50 minute chunks but they responded to it surprisingly well actually I was quite surprised by how well they sat through some of the more excruciating moments of the text and how they were talking about the ideas that came out of them. But it's it's often a big issue, particularly lower down at key stage three. The choices we make about texts have to be really quite careful indeed, particularly as many of our classrooms are much, much more multicultural than they were, say, 20 years ago. Oh, sure. And, and the, I mean, and well, that raises so that raises so many issues doesn't it because one I, I think Cassie was saying this in her interview one of the drivers for World Book Day is to make sure that in the books that are being offered to children they see the society that they live in represented uh, and I think publishing is trying to make or has been trying and is continuing to try to make a real shift towards more diverse output and clearly World Book Day has tried to do that as well uh, and that's something I'm definitely very aware of just trying to make sure that the books I write reflect the society that I live in. What kind of dilemmas do those involve as you're sitting there with the pen or at the computer? Um, in terms of of how I represent that society, you mean? I think um, so. Yeah. Um, well, uh, well, again, it's not actually something that I I really think too strongly about when I'm planning um, or or coming up with the idea for my story. The heart of that will be uh, a young a young teenager. In, a, in an interesting, challenge, probably challenging situation. Um, and then I will just start fleshing that idea out and developing it. And I will hopefully, 
I will hopefully find that as I do that, the people that teenager meets along the way, they will reflect the diverse nature of of the society that, because I always write or almost always write contemporary um, contemporary fiction. So the world, the world in my books will hopefully reflect the world that um, I live in. That the sorry, the world that the characters live in will reflect the world that I live in, and that that will happen naturally. But then when I'm reading it through, I will I will kind of make and I will certainly work on that with my editor, making sure that that I haven't um, ended up being um, with in in inadvertently uh, um, kind of too narrow in in my thinking in any way that I've made sure I have done that. I mean that's definitely something that I come I will think about afterwards, even if it's not as I'm in the flow of writing. But usually, mm-hmm. usually if I'm if I've got it in the back of my mind. Um, as a, and I'm making it sound like it's a conscious thought, but usually as I write, I will write uh, about a multicultural society because that's the one I live in. That's the one I experience on a daily basis. So it would be strange not to put that into uh, a work of contemporary fiction. Does that make Does that make sense? I think it does. Yeah, there's a kind of instinctual judgment you make, perhaps, about how you present this on the page yes and I think that's always been there but what's what's a good thing that's developed in the last few years is I think uh, an awareness um, well certainly I've experienced that from the publishing company that I am working with an awareness of making sure that we consciously do it rather than just relying on unconsciously doing it and I think that's a really positive step forward I agree. And when you're sitting there working on your one pound book, are you working on this at the same time as other works of fiction? Or are you devoting a specific block of time to starting, planning and finishing it? How does that work for you? Well, in an ideal world, I would be doing one book at a time. But I've been very fortunate to have been working on three books over the last year. So when I started writing Boy Missing, which is my one pound book day book i i was finishing off the edits and the proofreading um for the book i had that came out last july hide and secrets and whilst i was and i then wrote boy missing and and sent that off delivered that and then i had to start writing my next book which is coming out actually at the end of this month uh, another full-length teen thriller called Truth or Dare. So I had to s- stop writing that every now and then in order to respond to the uh, suggestions that were being made about Boy Missing t- from the editor, like ways in which we could um, uh, make the story stronger. Uh, so I, I was actually juggling three, I was actually juggling, I suppose, two books most of for most of I've been juggling two books for most of the last year gosh sounds quite an achievement well the the crucial thing is not to have to be writing two at once because when you're writing or at least the experience for me is I really enjoy getting caught up in the world I much as I I think many people find reading for pleasure you you enjoy getting caught up in the world of the book invested in the characters eager to find out what happens 
um, really caring about the characters in the story. And that's what writing a book is like. So I really only want to be doing one book at a time in terms of the momentum of that writing experience. But in some ways, it can be quite a, it, it can be quite a good thing to take a break from that when you've got to certain points. You actually put it down and have a little breather and turn your attention to something which is a little more technical, like going over um, a, a small editorial point on another book or proofreading an, another book. So it can actually it can actually work out quite nicely. I mean, it would still be it does make you very busy. So it would just be it would be nice to have the luxury of of um, seeing one thing through from start to finish, uh, and lots of time to watch movies in the afternoon, but. Uh, it, it can actually it can actually um, be um, be a really good process to 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 write uh, write one thing and then be doing something that I, I don't know planning or editing or something that's that's not quite such a doesn't involve quite such a, a lot of emotional investment. Uh, in fact, it's quite important, I think, to be able to withdraw a little bit when you're editing your own work to see it to see it fresh, to see it clearly. Uh, and that's very different from the writing process when you're completely, or I am anyway, completely absorbed by the story and the and the characters. That's that's fantastic. I mean, that's one thing that our students in my exams don't have the luxury of typically, of being asked to write and be creative from the planning to the drafting to the writing to the submitting phase in the space of forty five minutes. No, no, I, 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 and I, I, yeah, that's tough because I, I mean, it's one of the conundrums in creative writing classes that I teach, where if you want to do writing in the class, which is definitely part of, um, part of the whole experience, important part of it, you can really only give in a two-hour class, you can really only give students ten, maybe fifteen minutes to write any one exercise. Um, because you also have to allow time for sharing work and feedback, and 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 some people kind of well, it does depend on the exercise and how well set up it is to a certain extent. But for some people, it can be um, well, they, it's just not how they work. So it can be really challenging to get anything down that they're they, that they want to that they find helpful or want to take forward in in that 10, 15 minutes. And I I can only imagine that it's even more challenging if you're in an exam situation. Mm, really, really tough. Mm, really to tough. Know what advice to give, really. But before we move on to perhaps discussing the teaching of creative writing, I wondered if you might want to say a little bit about your first book, Girl Missing, which, of course, presumably you didn't have the luxury of working on three different phases at different times with that one. How did that come together for you? Um, well, Girl Missing was a very, very different experience um, because I didn't know any of the things I know now about age groups and what gatekeep- what the gatekeepers, the teachers and librarians um, will, you know, be, will, will consider appropriate, for instance, in, in terms of language. I had no idea how the whole publishing industry well I mean I'm not saying I know a huge amount of how publishing works really now it's all from an author's point of view but I really knew nothing when I was writing I, I didn't have contacts in book publishing at all um, I just wanted to write stories and I 
I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and really struggled to kind of turn my experience as a as a journalist into um, a way of writing successfully when it came to fiction writing and because they're such different things and I did a course at the City Lit and and that was fantastic I, um, I learned a huge amount of craft and technique from from there uh, and one of the things that I also did which was really helpful was get together with other people from my class and and we just would share chapters with each other and uh, in fact I still meet with those people now and we share our work with each other uh, and get to give and receive feedback. I mean, the giving as well as the receiving, the analysing of how someone, how how successfully someone has created the, their writing, how, how they've um, created a scene in the, the, the chapter that they've been writing, uh, is you, you can see things that you do yourself and take that into your own writing. And obviously receiving the feedback and being open to it and prepared to go back and have a look have another look. That's really helpful as well, or I found it so. And and Girl Missing kind of arose out of that process. I I wrote it really fast when I had the once I had the idea um, in about six weeks with absolutely no hope that it would ever get well or no real hope or expectation that it would ever get published. And no, I wasn't juggling anything. I'd actually been made redundant from a job and I was was just um, doing a bit of freelance work and and writing and writing l- lots of hours of t- writing was taking up a lot of time during the day. I'd stop when my son get, came back from school, but it was quite a an intense period. Um, so really different from how it all works now. Writing in a in a vacuum uh, and uh, just writing with com- the complete momentum of taking the story through from the start to the to the end. And after you've gone through that process then, how has that affected the advice you're passing on as a teacher of creative writing at City Lit? Do you mean in terms of the writing or the uh, um, the, the path to getting published? Uh, I wonder about both of them actually. I suppose they're slightly different angles but there's that sense isn't there of the kind of mechanics of writing and whether whether particular processes work for particular writers I'm always fascinated by writers individual rituals and then that sense I suppose of making yourself marketable to the publishing world well that was the bit I didn't really have any clue about I didn't know how to make myself marketable and and that's where I think I've been very lucky that the way I happen to write happens to be quite accessible which has allowed me to write books which have found audiences I think um and that that you know you can you can write really beautifully and yet not necessarily in a particularly commercial way and you you can have people who've and there are many people who've published one fantastic book and then and then just haven't been able to capitalize on that in terms of getting further getting future publishing contracts um and i i as i say i was for i i've been fortunate that i i think i was um, able to write things that were quite accessible right from the start. That was something that naturally happened. But I, 
I don't think you can teach that. I, th- I think everyone finds their own voice as a writer. And the only way to find that voice is just to write. Uh, and in terms of the craft and technique, I'm a really strong believer in, in that writing is not, or writing is almost entirely about hard work and focus and craft and um, the, the, the determination to just keep going, even when it's very frustrating. I don't, I, I think, I, I think there's a little bit of luck and a little bit of, in, in terms of having a good idea, for sure. Uh, and definitely um, the, there are, the, there's a certain element of talent involved but I think huge amounts of uh, creative writing technique can be passed on and I try to in my classes I try to pass on some of the craft that was taught to me and that I try I, I have been trying and I'm still in the process of trying to put into practice in all the books I've written from Gelma Singh onwards. I think we mentioned um, sometime last week about this idea of four stages of teaching creative writing. Did you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this is something that I've, I've re- I mean, this is a good example of how teaching creative writing has fed back into my own writing experience. Because as a teacher, I'm engaged in, in I only teach adults. Uh, I'm engaged in um working with people who haven't done any creative writing since perhaps they were at school and they're dipping their toe in the water or perhaps they even got given the a taster course as a as a Christmas present or something like that um, but I also run courses uh, for people who are actively engaged in writing a novel so I'm covering people who are kind of I, I've worked with people over the years who've, who are all stages on their creative writing journey. And what I've realized is that there are really four stages that everyone seems to go through. And the first is simply getting in touch with your creativity. Uh, and obviously you can do that through all sorts of, um, all, in all sorts of ways. I mean, it could be through um, making things with your hands. It could be through art or cookery you know it can be all sorts of things but most people who pitch up at a at a taster session of creative writing they have an idea that they'd like to connect with their creativity through the medium of words and my job is to encourage them to do that to give them a few to facilitate their doing that and to try and help them enjoy doing that um and it's it, it's surprising i think how how quickly People do re-engage, even if they haven't done it for a long time. And I and I find that just the the most rewarding aspect of those classes, in fact, that people get in touch with their creativity. So having done that, you you then you then start to want to communicate, which is the second C in my four C's. And when people start to want to communicate, that means they want to not just tap into their own their own creativity, but find a way of sharing that with other people to communicate. And to do that, you need the third C, which is craft. Uh, and that covers all the all sorts of techniques um, in terms of using um, all the senses and descriptions, as would be an example of uh, in, encouraging people to think about um, showing, not telling, that you know, classic writing trope, all sorts of things like that, that uh, point of view, 
um, structure and plotting, all sorts of, all, there are so many elements of craft characterization, uh, just bringing, bringing, giving people some tools. That's what, that's what I think the act of learning craft is. It's just, it's becoming aware of tools and knowing how and when you might want to use them. So I always try and present that as, this is a tool I found useful. Here it is. This is how I use it. Play with it. See if you find it useful. So it's, there's never a, it, it's never a case of there's a right or a wrong way to do this. There are choices though. And sometimes you can, if, if you're writing and being aware of those choices, it can be a, um, a more rewarding experience and enable you to develop your writing uh, in a deeper way. So tapping into creativity, one, the desire to communicate, uh, the, the helpfulness of learning some craft around that. And then the fourth C is commitment because writing is mostly rewriting, which is something I'd probably say in every single creative writing class. And uh, it's not about sitting down, writing something and then getting up and thinking, well, that's done, which is why I think the 45 minutes in an exam is particularly hard to, to kind of, would, would be particularly hard to handle because a lot of successful writing, I think, comes from not the first draft or, or having got a first draft down, then going over your work again and over it again and being open to seeing ways in which you can hone and, and develop it and improve it um, and having making the commitment to do that. Uh, is is as I say the fourth C and the and the kind of next stage that if you want to take it really seriously in terms of trying to get published for for people who are at that end of the creative writing on the creative writing spectrum, then then uh, that's definitely uh, something that's I think you you, you kind of have to buy into that you're going to have to commit to it if you really want to take it seriously and make a go of it if you're at that place on the journey. Yeah, I'm struck by the sense that quite a lot of children's authors have had some experience, actually, of the teaching profession before they become children's authors. Is there any advice you would be able to give to people who might be considering the challenge of writing fiction for children? Um, you mean coming from a particular background or, or just generally? I mean, generally, I mean, we tend to see quite a lot of celebrity children's authors, don't we? Mm, yeah. Who've had a had a career in being in the tabloid newspapers prior to picking up the pen. I wondered if there's anything you could advise people on making that leap into the world of children's <laughs> fiction. Yeah, if they haven't got that celebrity background to bounce off, um, which most of us obviously don't. So. I, I think that the real, well, I think it, the, it, it's those four things I was just talking about. Um, and the first step is really just to, to try it out for fun in, in terms of um, if you feel that there might be something you want to write, then I would say try and carve out some time to, to sit down and do it. I think courses can be helpful. Writing prompts can be helpful if, if it's, it's, if it's difficult to organize within your day, actually going, um, uh, going online and, and, and doing a search for writing exercises or writing prompts and coming up with some that you can then, uh, use as a way of kind of getting into a regular writing practice. 
all all those all those things can be can be really helpful. Um, there's there's a great advantage to being part of a group who are trying to write because it's it's not just that you bounce ideas and and learn technique, but also that you get the amazing support of fellow writers who who are also trying to 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 put themselves on the page and and tap into their own creativity. And it can be a really encouraging and and supportive environment for people. So I I would say if if you if if you want to do it then um yeah those are then then uh, the, the there's no shortcut just get writing and and join a join a class maybe if you can or or share with your friends if you have other people who who are trying to do do the same thing um but really it's it's actually just feeling that it's okay to carve out that time for yourself and i know mm. a lot of people are, are really time poor especially if you've got young children but honestly teachers have the most phenomenal back background of information a background of experience to bring to children's writing there are a lot of uh, as you just said there are a lot of former teachers who have turned to, to children's writing and i think that that the what they can bring and the authenticity that 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 they can bring to children's writing is something that could be could, could be really helpful as part of uh their their own process that's a really positive place to end sophie i could talk <laughs> to you for the rest of the evening but we're, we're nearly out of time so can i just thank you very very much indeed for the generosity with your time this evening and earlier this week it's been fascinating to look at how writing works for children from the inside. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed our show this evening. And I hope you've enjoyed being our guest. Very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Good night. Well, sadly, we've come to the end of another edition of The Late Show, but what an enjoyable one it's been. I hope my guests tonight have given you plenty to think about as you plan your own World Book Day events in your schools next month. Will your students be dressing up as their favourite literary characters? Will you be turning or tuning in to World Book Day's online events and sharing these with your students? Will your classrooms and corridors be echoing with public readings of inspiring stories and poems? Will the library shelves be empty as your students pick up their reading for the journey home on the school bus? Will there be authors in your school reading their texts and doing all the voices? Or will you simply be offering a quiet, comfortable space for young readers to create their own worlds in their developing imaginations? Thank you very much again to my excellent guests, Cassie Chatterton and Sophie McKenzie. Thank you for your inspiring thoughts about reading and World Book Day. Thanks to everyone who has tuned in tonight and texted the show. Do be sure to tune in to Holly Mann's late show at 8pm on Thursday the 3rd of March when she will be celebrating World Book Day itself with you all. It promises to be a great show. She'll be featuring an interview with children's author Danny Thompson and we're taking a look at World Book Day in different schools and communities on the day. So do listen in and let her know what you've been up to in your school. That's all from me for this month. So thank you for listening. Have a great World Book Day when it arrives, wherever you are. Make some time for your own reading and possibly your writing. And we will speak again next month. Goodbye.
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.